Welcome back to another episode of Warehousing Unboxed, an IWLA podcast. Today, we are here to talk about all things fulfillment. The fulfillment industry is a vital component of the global supply chain and has undergone a remarkable transformation over the years, propelled by the rapid growth of e-commerce and advances in technology. Join us as we explore the history and current state of the fulfillment industry and how it is evolving to meet the demands of today's customer. Then, IWLA Education Specialist Angela Moore talks with two members and leaders in the world of fulfillment as they share their insights, experiences, challenges, and their secrets to success. The history of fulfillment is a journey marked by significant developments, innovations, and adaptations. It has evolved from a very manual process to a sophisticated technology-driven industry, fueled by the ever-growing demand of global commerce. Today, we dive into the historical evolution of fulfillment, highlighting key milestones and factors that have driven this transformation. History of Fulfillment There are many traces of fulfillment found throughout history. Similar to the history of warehousing, the concept of fulfillment can be traced back to earliest forms of trade and commerce. In ancient civilizations, merchants and traders relied on rudimentary warehousing and manual labor to store and fulfill orders. Products were often made to order, and fulfillment was a localized affair, with limited geographic reach. The Industrial Revolution marked a significant turning point in the history of fulfillment and its reach. Technological advancements such as the steam engine and mechanized manufacturing enabled mass production and the growth of the merchant class. Warehouses evolved from basic storage spaces to organized facilities equipped with conveyors and forklifts for moving and storing goods. This continued until the late 19th century, when mail-order catalogs took off like a rocket. Companies like Sears and Montgomery Ward made it possible for customers to order a wide range of products via mail. Mail has always required efficient warehousing, catalog production, and distribution systems to fulfill orders accurately and quickly. Then came the internet. The birth of the internet in the late 20th century revolutionized commerce. Commerce emerged as a powerful force, allowing customers to place orders online, ushering in the era of online shopping, and the world at your fingertips. This shift in consumer behavior required a complete reimagining of the fulfillment process and industry as a whole. Fulfillment Today The fulfillment industry today encompasses a wide range of activities, from warehousing and inventory management to order processing and last-mile delivery. It serves as the bridge between manufacturers and consumers, ensuring that products reach their intended recipient accurately and efficiently. Here are some of the top components that make up a fulfillment business today. Number 1. Warehousing and Technology Warehousing still lies at the core of the fulfillment process. In the past, warehouses were often viewed as space for storage, but today's fulfillment centers are hubs for innovation and efficiency. Automation and technology play a pivotal role in streamlining operations as well. Robots and automated conveyor systems work alongside humans to pick, pack, and ship products. Advanced warehouse management softwares leverage real-time data to optimize inventory storage and retrieval, reducing errors and speeding up order fulfillment. Number two, order picking strategies. Efficient order picking is a critical aspect of fulfillment. Traditional manual picking methods are being replaced or enhanced by more sophisticated approaches. Zone picking, where each worker is responsible for a specific section of the warehouse, and batch picking, which allows multiple orders to be picked simultaneously, are becoming more commonplace. Autonomous robots are increasingly being used to navigate the warehouse and retrieve items, further enhancing accuracy and speed. Number three, last mile delivery. 
The last mile of delivery is often the most complex and costly part of the fulfillment process. Meeting the demands for faster and more convenient deliveries has led to innovations like electric delivery vehicles and drones. Data analytics has been harnessed to optimize delivery routes, ensuring timely and cost-effective deliveries. Number four, sustainability. Environmental awareness is growing within the fulfillment industry. To reduce the carbon footprint, companies are investing in electric vehicles and eco-friendly packaging methods. Sustainable warehouse designs that minimize energy consumption and waste are becoming more prevalent. Sustainability has evolved from being a moral choice to a competitive advantage in today's market with today's businesses. Number five, workforce adaptation. The workforce in the fulfillment industry is evolving in tandem with technological advancements. While automation is changing the nature of certain roles, it is also creating new employment opportunities. Workers are increasingly growing and adapting skills to meet the needs of technology operations to ensure the smooth functioning of automated systems. As you may have guessed, the fulfillment industry is not what it used to be. It has shifted from dark and crowded warehouses to state-of-the-art fulfillment centers powered by automation, artificial intelligence, and data analytics. Order picking has become more efficient, and last mile delivery innovations are reshaping the way products reach customers. Sustainability is now a central consideration in every aspect of the industry. From packaging to transportation, the industry will continue to evolve. And with that, it remains at the forefront of change, adapting to shifts in e-commerce and consumer expectations. The future of fulfillment promises further advancements, reshaping the industry even more and driving it towards new heights. But of course, we cannot talk about this ever-evolving world of e-commerce without hearing firsthand how this industry is tackling these changes. Today, IWA Education Specialist Angela Moore sat down with two IWA Warehouse members to discuss the fulfillment industry and their experience owning and operating a successful fulfillment business. Please enjoy CEO and President of DG Fulfillment, Deborah Griffith, and co-founder of Renewal Logistics, Courtney Folk. Hello, and thank you for joining us on Warehouse Unboxed, Episode 3. I'm Angela Moore, the Education Specialist at IWLA. We have with us Deborah Griffith and Courtney Folk. Uh, Deborah, can you please tell us about you? Can you give a brief summary of your history in warehousing and fulfillment? I'll try to be brief. Uh, I've been doing this a long time. Interestingly, my fulfillment career actually started the summer after high school. I worked in a production uh, environment for a direct mail and letter shop company. And I started by working on a Disney fulfillment program. And, you know, it's like where I learned to do collation and sorting and affixing and still use those career, those skills today. In those days, the department was called Inquiry Fulfillment. And so I might really be dating myself, but the fulfillment was literature. So, you know, in a magazine, you have a bingo card saying, hey, I'm interested in these places or, you know, items. Those would come to a company like us and we'd data enter and then fulfill either literature or gosh, anything. We even did, I, uh, I think you guys are younger than I. I keep on saying I'm so old, but Morris the cat was a cat uh, mascot and they had a promo going where you would take the labels off the can and submitted a certain amount and you got a Morris the cat t-shirt. We fulfilled the Morris the cat t-shirt. So fulfillment... <laughs> <laughs> a little different to fast forward to where we are now. I wound up actually back at that same company working where I had been in high school probably 15 years later. 
I started with another company that did direct marketing firm for uh, travel and hospitality. And it was bought out by the company that I had worked for in high school. And I've been controller, um, CFO. I've been customer service. I've been VP of operations. I really have systems analysts. I, I just know the business. And um, in 2020, I started off on my own. The company I was working for, the owner had passed away and I was trying to purchase it, but we couldn't come to terms. So February 1st, 2020 was my first day in my new warehouse. And we started with 30 programs and now have about a hundred programs. And I wouldn't have thought that I was going to be here where I am now, but sorry, that wasn't that brief, but that's who I am. Wonderful. And Courtney, can you also give a little history of your career in warehousing and fulfillment and how you uh, came to be where you are now? Sure. So Deborah, your story is amazing. It's, you've got such a breadth of experience, which is really cool. Mine's a little different. We actually, my husband and I started in business together. We got married when we were 23 and promptly quit our jobs. He was a chemist at SLED and I was a sales rep for Alltel, which is now Verizon. And I sold corporate plans to mechanical contracting companies. And I found that they all had the same problems. And um, we actually got engaged and then started to work in his parents' business, which at the time was like dry cleaning. And so they had four small dry cleaning stores and I was always really aggressive. We both were always very aggressive about wanting to grow. And so we were always looking for how can we kind of like 10X or 100X our units per customer. And we actually got immediately into the insurance restoration business where we cleaned apparel items for customers who'd had house fires to help them get their lives back together. And so it was, you know, we went from four units a customer to like 400 units a customer. And then in 2013, we were approached by, we, we grew that to become the largest in the U.S. that's an independent restoration dry cleaning company. And then in 2013, we were approached by a very large, well, it was, it was Calvin Klein and, um, they had a really big need to have a bunch of items cleaned and, and those items had to be shipped out immediately to an account that they were going to lose if they weren't very careful. And it was, it was a top uh, retailer account. And so anyway, we, we had to kind of do a little bit of rework on this project for them. The items were, were great, but they just needed a little special attention and it was like 300,000 units and we had to get them out in two weeks. And, um, so we had two shifts of 200 workers for almost two weeks. And it was, that was our first time we'd ever worked with temp labor and we'd ever kind of worked on that large of a scale of a project, but we, we got it all done in time. And then the customer was super happy. And they were just like, guys, you guys, where'd you come from? We uh, we don't like working with 3PLs, but we we really like you guys. So let's let's see what else we can do to partner together. And so we we continue to work with them. And then they finally were like, guys, we need you to put a facility next to ours because we're paying a lot for, you know, shipping for freight to have things coming to your location all the time. Because they basically send us anything that just they didn't want to do that didn't fit within their within, you know, that was simple for, for them to do within their four walls. And so that was returns. It was reticketing. It was relabeling. It was changing out items from hanging to in a poly bag so it could be shipped for e-com. And so then a few years ago, we opened up a dedicated facility for them and handled all of those types of projects for them. They had several distribution centers that were doing all of that. And then over time, they, you know, we kind of, that all matriculated into us and then we were like, you know, we've got this global experience with apparel companies and we understand 
these huge volume type of projects and how to manage them effectively. I bet there's a lot of other apparel companies that need a really solid returns vendor that can refurbish things and get them back to factory fresh condition and handle, you know, changing out labels and things so that they can sell across, you know, to different retailers based on what the needs are. And so we started kind of prospecting and reaching out and letting people know that we were interested in doing fulfillment for apparel companies. And so that's grown a lot. And we we now do, uh, you know, we work with like mid-market companies and some small companies as well, but to kind of help them, we kind of look for the customer who has been in a giant facility, a giant 3PL facility, and they haven't had the attention they need to be able to continue to scale properly. And so helping them kind of right size into our business because we're not the, the largest 3PL that's out there. We're not that small, but we're not massive either. And so that's kind of how we got into the business that we're in. And, and like I said, now we work with a lot of companies that are trying to grow their programs so that they can be global and they won't have to leave us to go to another larger facility later because we can handle that larger scale. So, and then as far as, you know, like being in the industry, we've made a lot of friends in the industry. I think it's one of, it's, an, it's a very small industry, even though it, it manages a lot of product. And I think just, you know, getting out there and finding a place to fill a need is important. And, you know, I had a call earlier today with another IWA business and and they were like, hey, I had this lead that came through and it didn't fit my customer profile at all, but it fit yours. So I thought of you and, you know, and, and that happens a fair amount. All right. Excellent. Well, Courtney, what are some of the challenges that you see the fulfillment industry facing today? Well, you know, I feel like... <laughs> Uh, we've all, Deborah, I'm sure you feel this way too. During COVID, it was like the challenges just kept coming. And I honestly, I feel like the challenges now are starting to kind of level out a little bit. I think the major challenge that a lot of companies are kind of feeling the squeeze on is that, um, there was a pullback from retailers and buying more product, especially on the apparel side, because they were just, there was this glut of product that was on the market. And so the second and third quarter seemed like there was a slowdown on the, on the larger, like majors um, in terms of buying more product. But now it seems like that's picked back up. And I think um, the first of next year is going to be back on track. And so I think we've worked through a lot of the concerns that have been there. I think we still are dealing with, you know, lots of migration of people. And so labor challenges are there and, you know, certain markets are better with that than others. We're lucky to be in the South where that's not really that much. That's not a problem at all for us because that's where everybody's coming. But, you know, I think, like I said, I think a lot of the challenge that we've, we've all been feeling are starting to finally, some of those pressures are starting to recede and that's very nice. Deborah, are you seeing any of those same challenges? Yeah, I mean, this definitely there. There's been a slowing this year. I mean, my largest customers has, as you know, they, they're like, "Hey, we're not surprised you're slower because we've actually had seen a twenty percent drop in our revenue this year, but it's starting to ramp up." I see that for the fulfillment industry in general. I'm not as large as, you know, these, you know, we always know Amazon's the big guy, right? But any large 3PL, they're going to have a different pricing model than somebody that is my size. And, and, and just even Courtney, like you were talking about location, I'm in California. So my minimum wage is going to be $16 an hour in January. My rent, you know, is going up, everything is going up. And my customers don't, want to see an annual increase and, you know, or they're, you know, we'll call in like, oh my gosh, your pricing so expensive. And I'm like, I sell labor. 
I don't sell really anything else, right? I'm not selling a widget. I don't have markup places. So it's really kind of hard to educate them on the differences that maybe, you know, why you can go do something for 50 cents. I, you know, I can't, you know, I just, it's silly. And I think that that's a difficult thing and why what we do is, I'm not selling price. I can't sell price. I won't win by price. So, you know, we have to find a difference of what we are selling. I mean, it sounds like Courtney found a niche for them. You know, we find a niche for helping people with, I hate to say it, but things that other people don't want to do, you know, specialty wrap, kidding, or, you know, we want a handwritten note card. So there's, so we have a little different type of fulfillment than, you know, it would, I was telling somebody, Hey, it would be awesome if everything was exactly the same size. It all fit on the rack exactly the same size. And I could calculate all of, you know, your storage, your inventory, everything. My life is not like that. Um, and so it's it's just right now we're getting ready for a uniform program that there's 30,000 pieces that are coming in and they have to go out within three weeks. So, um, you, you know, it's like, where do you find temporary storage and things like that? So that's where I find for me as a smaller company that <laughs> that's the challenge for us is trying to compete with, you know, the larger customer. Yeah, I feel that too, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, but I will say this too. I think, I think it's so important to know your competition. We have like, you know, three PLs that are out there that we compete with and they are less expensive sometimes, but at the same time, you know, three other customers just came from them to us, you know? So like, it's one of those things where you just kind of almost, for me personally, the way I look at it is when I start seeing problems in the industry, I look at those as opportunities. I look at like, how can I turn this problem around into something that's going to ultimately benefit me? And if I see that like, this is an issue, okay, so how can we kind of work on that issue to make it different? Kind of like what Deborah was saying with like, you know, you're, you're there to do the things that no one else wants to do and to like the companies that don't fit into those big boxes that aren't cookie cutters. That's kind of your, that's your path. That's, that's kind of our path too. No one wants to do apparel because it's like millions of SKUs per customer. And it's like, you know, a lot of travel time and a lot of storage to be able to, to store all those items. So for us, that's like, well, you know, we're happy to do it because, you know, We'll, we'll find it as long, you know, we'll find a way to make money at it. And if a customer is happy and you get someone in the door and you do a great job for them and you have to have that conversation of like price pricing is we have to make an adjustment. I think in general, if they, if they really know, like, and trust you, they're going to understand your business because, you know, you're so intertwined with them. So it's, it's one of those things where it's really stinks to have those conversations. They stress me out and they make me very nervous and I worry about it for weeks before I do it. But then when you actually do it, it's like, okay, well, I get where you're coming from. And so I think that's been the nice thing about COVID is that we all saw these crazy swings in labor and swings in real estate. And so it's made everyone kind of ready to just kind of pivot at a moment's notice and just kind of take what comes, just kind of keep taking the hits but I think we're all at the point now too, to where like that inflation is definitely starting to catch up and it's like, okay, there's just, you know, we're in a service business. I don't think most service companies really want to do price increases, but you know, when you have a huge labor increase, you have to do them sometimes. And um, so, you know, I just think that relationship goes a long way, um, but you can't have, you know, sometimes customers don't want to have a relationship in the fulfillment world. They don't, you know, 
you, they want you to be invisible. And so it's, it's a, it's a balancing act for sure. Well, and there's been a lot of changes in uh, technology over the past five years. So Deborah, what are some of those major emerging technologies that you've seen shaken up the fulfillment world? Well, we started out with that. We just made a change this year. So I'm kind of in the automation mode. Um, I'm not, you know, not robotic or any of these things, but we are, we move from paper picking to the scanning. So directed pick and, you know, that's just made a big difference. It, it was amazing when, as we were trying to switch over, you realize how many manual things that you are doing that are kind of frightening that, you know, you ask for, I want this report or I need to know this data and I'm trying to, you know, get my supplies. But once we started doing everything, just even electronically scanning of the items led us to being able to pack within the system and packing in the system was able to tell what type of supplies we had. And now all of a sudden I had the system was telling me how long it was taking, you know, my employees to do the job that for me, it's just not even, I guess I feel like it's not like that, like earth shattering for a lot of people. They're like, Oh, we've been doing that for a while. For me as a small guy, it was huge. I just, I can't even quantify how much time my employees were spending to be able to give me the data I needed to run my business. (laughs) So um, that, that was significant for me. And how about you, Courtney? Have you seen any major changes in technology in the past five years? Yeah. So I agree with Deborah. like the, um, I, I think the WMS platforms have gotten a lot better. And I mean, even integrations have gotten a lot easier. One place I think is a little different than exactly what you're talking about, but it was on the same track as what Deborah was talking about is like RFID. So I just did a webinar with Avery Dennison, where we kind of created a masterclass on RFID. And it was amazing to see how RFID is being leveraged. And so like, you know, what you're talking about with like, you know, being able to just get the data together, it was such a manual process before. Well, with RFID, a great example. So like Lululemon, they'll have like, they they had a kind of a scarcity model where they would want to have like one of each item of each size on the floor so that someone would be like, oh my goodness, there's only one left. I have to go ahead and buy it. And so, but to be able to like maintain that through the day and keep there from being like holes and size runs and things, they have to constantly be pulling stock from the back and putting it back out on the floor. Well, before they were doing that manually and they were basically standing there with like a a walkie talkie to someone in the back and that person in the back was writing it down and then going and pulling the items and then coming and delivering them to the front. Now they can just do like a report once an hour that shows how many items have been pulled out of their out of the um, the storefront and what do they have to pull from the back to be able to replenish that? And it's like completely automated. And so like, I think it used to be this whole thing of like automation is going to like take away everybody's jobs. I don't think that's true. I think it's, it actually, it, it just makes life easier for everyone. And I think that's the the great thing. Like for us, when we look at automation in our building, we look at what are the most miserable jobs and, and what are the jobs where people are having to do the same thing over and over again and they feel like a robot. And that's where we want to plug in, you know, technology. And, and so for us, we actually just bought all of our racking now is set up so that we can use the robots and we're not, we're not currently using the robots, but we're looking at, we're looking at, at the robots and how can they be utilized in our facility. And we've, We've been going to see a lot of the um, apparel distribution centers that are that are throughout the U.S. to to try to figure out to get some really good ideas for for how to implement that. Well, that's cool. I'm going to have to go see Courtney. 
<laughs> well, our place right now is, you know, it's like I said, we've got the, we've got the racks for it, but we don't actually have them. So I, I'm sure there's many other places that are, <laughs> that are more exciting to visit than ours. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to get like, I don't know, Deborah, if they do like the next generation manufacturing in your, in your area, but they, they have that here. And it's really fun to go do facility tours of like, you know, supplement factories and co-packing factories and, you know, just see there's just so much technology out there. So I like, I like to do that when I have time, when I'm not putting out fires. (laughs) (laughs) Customer expectations have also changed quite a bit in recent years. So Courtney, what are some of those major factors that you have seen in customers as they are choosing a fulfillment company to work with? I think I'll go back to what Deborah said again. I think a lot of people, it used to be all about price before, um, before COVID, it was just really all about price. And then during COVID and, you know, with not even just really COVID, but like with the decline and and the work ethic of the U S and how it's just so hard to find good people at this point, I think people are willing to pay for their product to be in an environment where there's a good culture, because that means that there's going to be consistency and there's going to be reliability. And um, I think people are just kind of really yearning for that. They want they want a good experience where they don't have to babysit the the vendor, the 3PL partner that they're working with. And, and they want to be able to kind of just, it's in your building. Let me wash my hands and move on and focus on talking to my customers and coming up with new cool products. And so I think I think that going back to what she said about, you know, like, being paid a little more to do different things. I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, being paid a little more so that the employees are treated right so that they'll stick around is the other side of that coin. And Deborah, have you seen some of those uh, same customer uh, expectations as they have changed? Yeah, I I see, you know, it's, it's always, it's that same day fulfillment expectation. I actually thought this was interesting. We've always had this philosophy of, you know, oh, same day, we're going to get it out. Well, that was when we had a small number of programs. And what I have been surprised is the larger we've gotten or the more, you know, orders we have or programs we have that, you know, of course that becomes harder and harder to be able to always meet. And the the customers all expect same day and, but fulfillment for us, the orders drop, you have no idea how many orders are going to drop. And I feel as a 3PL, we're always reacting, you know, if because our customers don't always share with us the, you know, maybe a promo or an ad or, you know, some special or, oh, we have a new project that's, you know, that we opened up to, you know, a new team. And so maybe that says my customers aren't working that well with me or I'm not working that well with them, but it's just an expectation. And I, I try to like say, hey, there's a difference where all of a sudden if you spike you know, 500 new orders that I wasn't expecting. I don't have, you know, we'll go back to that automation. I don't have androids that are sitting there. We're just waiting to come and, and help me to get all those orders out. So I, I think that expectation is a little bit like the customers putting their head in the sand. I mean, it's like they know it, but I don't think they want to, allow, I think they want us to try to figure out how to get it done. And then if we can't, they're like, oh, well, they're going to give us the out when we can't succeed. I don't know. That sounds weird, but I mean, I feel like sometimes, you know, you just keep on trying to do what they they want you to do and that with the expectations. And then, then you realize that I always feel like they, they just want to push you a little bit more. Courtney, uh, how does fast fashion affect the fulfillment industry? You deal with apparel a lot. Yeah, you know, fast fashion is interesting. It's um, 
So the, the challenge, I heard somebody say this and I don't remember who it was. I wish I could give them credit for it, but basically like with fashion, you have this, like it's super hot for six weeks and then it's dead. Then that item is just not going to sell anymore. So like no one right now is buying shorts, right? No one right now is buying bathing suits. And, and so fast fashion kind of what happens is with brands that do a lot of it, you end up having like this long tail skew issue, which is basically you have like all these leftovers from the end of the season. And then brands will, they kind of want to get like a deal when it comes to the manufacturing. So they'll buy more than maybe they need. And then there's maybe not a realization that if they're really not buying what they actually need and they're they're overbuying, then they're going to end up paying for it on the back end when it comes to like storage, storage on goods that they're just not selling. So we we kind of actively talk to our customers about their inventory and very nicely. We don't ever want to push someone or insult someone about their product, but it's we just kind of say, you know, um, here here are some of the bin locations that haven't had a lot of activity. Just wanted to let you know that it's been six months since they, these have been touched. And do you want to keep paying storage on them or do you want to do you want to find a different solution for them? And so we're we're kind of always keeping our ear to the ground with like uh, liquidators and and other opportunities to be able to kind of help our brand customers find a solution for those things. And sometimes that's trunk shows. Sometimes it's like just fire sales of like, Hey, 50% off for these certain SKUs. And, but I think helping them kind of stay top of mind on that is great because then that just feels like to them that we're a partner. And it also helps us because we, you know, we don't want, we're not being paid if we're not touching that, that pick location. And Courtney, can you tell me a little bit about reverse logistics? Uh, how does it work? Why is it important when you're dealing with the fulfillment process? Yeah. So, it, so again, we're fashion reverse logistics is like one of the biggest components of apparel fulfillment. So like, let's say that you're a prom dress brand. So you have like a short, you have a couple months of selling season and you don't want to have a million units of each SKU. You want to, you want to only have a few of each SKU, but if, and then, but then let's say that your, you know, your sales, you have a 50% return rate for e-com orders. So then all of a sudden that means that 50% of your stock, if it takes a long time to get back into forward logistics. So if it takes a long time to get received back in to where it can be sold again, all of a sudden you're, you're having to buy extra product to be able to cover that you know, that extra 50% that's that's sitting in limbo somewhere. So if you have a reverse logistics partner that can dry clean and refurbish and get those things back to factory fresh and do it within a day or two, all of a sudden they get the same amount of sales for a lot less product that they're actually having to purchase. And also sometimes what can happen is, you know, it gives you the ability to see what your actual sales could be. So like sometimes people will continue to purchase that same amount of stock for another year and then say, okay, what can my sales actually be? Because a lot of times if they're selling out, they really never know what their potential is to have to been to have been able to sell for that year. So having a little extra stock on hand sometimes can be nice in that way. But really that's kind of the thing about reverse logistics. It's it's re- it's receiving it back from the customer who bought it that didn't want it, figuring out how what needs to happen to it next. Does it need to be put directly back into stock because they never even opened the package? Does it need a new poly bag? Does it need, did they try it on? And now is there a deodorant stain and someone needs to get that out before it gets re refolded and then put back in a new poly bag. So it's, it's just that matter of figuring out what to do with an item that's been returned and how to basically 
handle that as fast as possible. Because if you think about it, when there's a return out there, that money is being tied up. So like the the sales are not coming in because that money is, that item is sitting there in an unsellable condition. The customer hasn't received their money back because it's, it's sitting, you know, it's still sitting somewhere and it hasn't been inspected to be confirmed that the funds can be released. So, and on a large scale for very large companies, that can be hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. Um, if So like if you're dealing with like 100,000 units of returns that need to be um, credited back, you know, that, that could be a million dollars or a lot of money for, for a company to, to just have to hold on to. And for their retailer partner that's trying to sell those items for them, a long time for them to have to wait for their credits. So that was one of the first things that we really learned how to do in this in this industry is is the reverse logistics side. And I think we've we've really got a handle on it for our customers. And I think that's a place that it provides a lot of value. And also the last thing I would say about this from a sustainability perspective is like if you have your if you have your forward logistics in one location and then you have your reverse logistics. So you have your returns going to a different location. And then those items have to travel from that reverse logistics location or that return center back to your fulfillment center, then you've got all this extra shipping costs that you're paying for and all this extra pollution that's happening from that travel. So having it all in one place is really important for an apparel company, especially the closer they get to 50% in returns, the more important it is. So if it's like 1%, it's not a big deal, but if it's like 40, 50%, it's a huge deal. Okay. And we've touched a little bit about labor challenges that, that affect the fulfillment industry. So Deborah, what kind of things are you seeing in terms of labor challenges in your warehouse? So our production staff are kind of, we're heavily weighted in, in Hispanic employees who English is not their first language. And we were trying to figure out why like somebody would would send, let's say, a T-shirt or a crew neck versus a sweater. Or we just found that there's a lot of, it's funny, we're still talking apparel. I'm not like heavily apparel like Courtney is, but I'm talking about apparel. So I feel like we kind of went down that path. But there's so much language involved in describing, you know, we have hoodies, we have sweatshirts, we have pullovers, we have quarter zips, we have three quarter zips, we have... And we found that with our employees, it was like, why did you pull this one? This is before we were audit- more automated, but it was like, why did you send, uh, you know, this when it sh- it's obvious, uh, you know, what is it, a, a V-neck? And it's obviously, a, it's not a crew neck. And in talking to the staff, they didn't know what a crew neck was. It hadn't translated to them. So here we have, you know, we have SKUs and you're supposed to go on the SKU and all like this. But, you know, I always hope that there's a little human person that's there that reading what the description is and says, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. So we actually found there was many more things like that in our in our world that you can't assume that the employees know what the word is. And so we actually created our own glossary of terms going all the way to even color. I think the funniest thing is, is like, why can't we just stay with primary colors, right? Red, green, you know, there's, there's things that are magenta or chartreuse, or you have, you know, Heather gray, even, even, I think it's funny, even I talked to some of my friends and you ask them, well, what color do you think, you know, this is, and they have no idea. But, you know, the manufacturers put all these colors out and it comes into our world and, you know, they're trying to interpret something that it's not really fair, not really fair to expect them to be able to understand what it is that we're looking at. So we we changed that in with the language. The other thing that we found is going to the technology, we, we had 
So when we moved from the paper picking to the handheld, again, they're supposed to go from here, I'm going to the location, I'm finding the ID, I'm confirming I have the ID and the quantity, and I've confirmed the pick. I mean, that's, that is like the way it's all supposed to work. What we found is that the employees weren't that savvy in the computer, and they also couldn't read what it was telling them to do. And they would go to the location and confirm, not necessarily confirm that they had pulled the item. So we were having things close or having to do some other adjustments or cycle counts or what's going on, trying to backtrack. And it's like we to be able to have them understand that they saying that they had that item in their hot little hands. You know what I mean? And it was just something that you 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 think it's logical. And yet, because they don't have necessarily, you know, I don't have a Spanish screen, there's no translation for them, they have to understand what the steps are. And that was a huge learning curve when we switched over this year. Those are just the fun challenges every day. Yeah, I remember that story so clearly. That's why I wanted you to mention it. (laughs) All right. Well, and Deborah, what are some of the secrets that you've found to success as you've been running your own fulfillment business? Secrets. Okay. (laughs) Uh, No, you know what? I The thing that I find for us is the reliability and dependability. There's so many times my customer has said, I, you know, it's like they've been referred to me because they said go to Deb because she will make sure it gets done. They will take care of you. They will follow it through. That's, that's a big piece of who we are. Also communication. And this sounds really, really odd, but I get so, I don't know about you guys, but I get, I answer the phone when the phone rings and it's a customer, I answer the phone and I talk to them and I can't believe how many times somebody says, you know what? I just really appreciate that every time I call, you pick up the phone. And I'm like, why would I not? I mean, (laughs) so I don't know if so much of our industry or even, you know, just business in general, people are so used to doing it electronically or email or text or, you you know what I mean? Someone leaves a message, but then you answer them with an email. I I really don't know. I, I, it, it still just kind of surprises me. It's not just like one person or an occasional. I probably have at least weekly, some you know, somebody who's saying to me, you know what, I just really appreciate that you always pick up the phone. That's why they come back to me, I guess. <laughs> and Courtney, what are some of the secrets that, have, that you have found, secrets to success in running your own fulfillment business? Man, uh, what a question. So I think, I guess I would say a couple things. I think, first of all, if you have failures in, in your employees, like if, if someone doesn't work out, I always try to learn from it and have a team meeting about like, okay, you know, especially with my leadership, because I spend, I don't work directly with customers. I have a leadership team that I work with on that. And so for me, it's like, okay, did we go through the why? Did we go through the what that we're asking? Um, how much did you go through the how that you're asking? And I think like there's an assumption with like trying to lead a management team that everyone understands what you're saying. And um, like as an owner, as a as a you know, a business professional, what what happens is a lot of times people don't want to be honest with you. They don't want to tell you that they don't really understand what you're asking. They're going to shake their head and say, yes, I can do this, but they really can't. And it's also true with managers. As soon as you have a manager, you know, a manager is going to get that same feeling from their, from their direct reports. And so, you know, really being clear with people about like what it is you're trying to accomplish, what has to be done, documenting, 
creating SOPs that have pictures and just really solid explanations and then training people to the point to where they can't fail. And, and that's for high touch customers or like high touch situations or high, like parts of the process, they're high touch. The other side is like on our WMS, we kind of specifically looked for the simplest WMS in terms of a uh, employee interface as possible so that when when it came time to like train up new people, it was really, really easy. And so like with ours, it's like red or green. So scan the scan the pick location, scan the unit, red, okay, there's a problem or green, go ahead. And so for us, it's been, we've just been trying to really kind of like get on our employees level and say, okay, like, what is it that these people need to be successful? And how do we as leaders and managers make them successful? That's, that's one thing I would say. And then the same thing I would say is that like, we all have customers that don't fit our profile. And I think a lot of 3PLs kind of want to be everything to everybody. And, you know, we've, we've grown a lot, but there was definitely a period of time where we weren't growing and it was, we were still figuring out kind of how we fit in the marketplace. And and the biggest challenge that we faced at that point was that every single customer that would come to us would need a bespoke solution. They would need a completely bespoke pricing profile. They would need different handling solutions. And, and at some point for, for me, we just got to the point where we were like, you know what, if we could just replicate this process across this industry for this segment of the apparel marketplace, then we can make a lot of people happy for a very low lift. You know, it's it's not going to require a lot of work to be able to come up with pricing for this apparel company versus that apparel company. It's going to be very similar. And so we kind of really got to the point where we really defined our ideal customer profile and have been very careful to stick to that. And, and I think that, you know, when you do that, you all of a sudden gain a lot of efficiencies because your employees are cross-trained for just that type of, or, you know, they, they know how to do everything within that, that customer's needs, but really they can be plugged into any customer because most of the customers are the same enough. So I think we're in that place where we, we want to provide custom, a custom approach for our customers. Um, but we also don't want to be so custom that we're having to, to reinvent the wheel every, every time we do business with someone. And Courtney, if someone was interested in starting a fulfillment company, what would you say are some of the most important things that they should keep in mind? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think like, I think it's a great business. I think you need to have the IWA contract for sure. <laughs> uh, if you don't, it's, it's, um, you could, there's, there's a lot of liability you're handling, you're not just handling a customer's product, you're handling their business. And so if you don't have your contract right, you can really find yourself in a bad position. And that doesn't, and not even to say, so like, for instance, we had to fire a customer one time and they just were mean. They just weren't nice. And my employee had seven people who were like, I'm going to quit if I have to keep working with this customer. And so we had to, we had to let them go. And, and they were like, well, you're, you're harming our business because, you know, this is going to cost us this much money to leave. And, and I was like, well, to be honest, Mr. Customer, you and I personally have had five or six or seven or eight conversations about this. And it's been over the course of like six months. So something should have been done. But, you know, the fact is I was protected in that situation because IWLA, the contract talks about how, you know, we're not liable for for their business, for how their business runs. And if they were nice people, they wouldn't have been in that situation or not even nice, but just like normal people. So I think there's, I think that's one thing I would definitely say. I think 
you really have to lean on the knowledge of a lot of people around you. This is not a business that you can just like open up a warehouse and all of a sudden start doing business. Like Deborah was talking about, she's had like 10 different jobs in her in her career, all in the same fulfillment space. And that's the thing. You have to really know how to do all of those things pretty well before you're going to sell a customer and certainly to be able to keep a customer. And for us, that's really important. We've never lost a customer that left because you know we, we didn't ask them to leave. The only time we ever lost a customer was that one that we had to ask to leave. And so we just don't want to put our name out there on anything that's not going to be successful. And so I think like just having a network to be able to kind of lean on whenever something new comes along because every, every customer, even though they may have the same product, they're a little different. And then the final thing I would say is just like, try to not have your head buried in the day-to-day too much and to be able to lift up and, and just really spend time shopping technology that's out there and the automation that's out there. And even if you're not buying it, know what's going on so that when when you're in a position to where you may want to buy it, you can and, and you know what's there because there's definitely customers who, you know, if you had the shrink wrap machine, you could do this certain thing that would make them so happy with their Amazon prep and like, you know, knowing it's out there and being able to know how long it's going to take to get it and having a relationship with the vendor that can that can make a difference between getting a program and not getting a program if you're dealing with someone who needs to make a fairly quick decision excellent and and Deborah in just those past few years that you've been starting your business what would you say are the top 3 most important things that you have been that you've kept in mind. Well, I think that Courtney hit it on the head with the fact that you have to have individuals that you know know the business. Um, I was really fortunate in the fact that I brought key people with me that I've worked with over ten years, and you know it's the areas you need to you know inventory control, shipping, customer service. I mean, just order fulfillment. It's not just order fulfillment. I mean, it's like you have to have people who actually understand what's going to do. I would not have opened if I didn't have them go with me. It would have been just too much work, too hard to get it all to to train everybody on what it's supposed to be. The other thing is, and it's kind of similar to what Courtney was saying was kind of funny is that I say mistakes happen. You know, that's one thing that you have to understand no matter what your, you know, business that you're in. I think you need, it's important to own up as a company and starting with the fulfillment, you know, I mean, any program that you're going to do is sometimes maybe, you you know, acknowledging that, you know, there's been an issue, you know, don't try to hide from it, find out why it happened and, and how you can actually, you want to prevent it. You don't want to do it again. I think that that's important when you're starting because that's your reputation. The other is to really make sure you have the technology to run the programs so you can report on the productivity, uh, capturing the data for billing. You need to know, I think the hardest thing that I even still find now is that sometimes we come up with a pricing model that you know, maybe we see it from somebody else, or this is how that they track it, or this is how they're reporting it. If your processes and your system don't support how you're billing, this happened to me in the other firm I was with, company I was with, that they, the the CEO then before me had come up with a pricing strategy. And we were all looking at him around the room because we knew that there was no way to find the data that he had actually put together for a pricing scenario. And it just, it was like, you had to work around things to be able to price, you know, to to send an invoice. And that's something I just, 
I, I'm really trying to be very consistent with, I only price in a way that I can actually justify and show to the customer, you know, no smoke and mirrors or anything like that. So I just, I feel that that's important starting probably any business, but make sure that you can actually have the support that you need to do the, the, the business. All right, Deborah, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today as we've uh, had a chance to talk about fulfillment. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Thanks.